offer a statement that maybe you've been there at some point in your life. Maybe you've had more questions than answers. And if that's ever been a part of your journey, that's actually why we're doing this series called Stranded by Religion. And we're in week six of this series, and I know many of you are thinking, is it ever going to end? Yes, it will. We have two weeks left in this series. And uh, then we're going to do a, a series right before the holidays called My Crazy Family. And uh, we're going to talk about how we get everyone around the table, even the crazy ones. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Right inside of your bulletin should be some message notes. Go ahead and grab those out. We want to say welcome to those of you watching in the parent viewing room. That's a great place to go if you have little ones that get fussy during the service. We just kindly ask that you take them out, and an usher can help you find that room where you can watch the service live with us. Uh, well, all during this series, we've been asking this question, what would an adult starting point of faith look like for you? That if you'd never been to church, if you'd never read the Bible, if you'd never heard anything about God or Jesus or anything, how would you start over? Uh, because the truth is, everything in our life had a starting point, including your faith. And for many of us, it started as a kid, right? When our parents or a priest or a pastor told us what to believe, and we just went with it, right? It made sense to us. But the older we got, there were gaps between simplistic faith and our childhood faith, right? The simplistic childhood faith and the real-life pressures of adulthood that we started bumping into. And everything didn't add up, and questions didn't seem to have good answers. And God didn't always answer your prayer the way that you were taught that he would, or bad things still happened to good people. And you had to figure out what to do with some of those gaps. And maybe you even went back to your parents or back to your priest or back to your pastor asking some of these questions. And it became clear that your questions were not welcomed. And maybe for you, you felt stranded by religion. Stranded by the questions that you've had. And so maybe you just walked away from church altogether. Maybe you unintentionally walked away from faith. Or maybe you put faith like in this really neat compartment and you put it up on the shelf and you just pull it out every single Sunday morning because that's what you were taught to do. And so I want to talk today about a version of faith that actually Jesus talked about all throughout Scripture that is quite different maybe than what you've experienced. And today we're going to pick up this conversation by talking about one behavior that we all have in common. Now, when I say this, you're going to immediately probably smile and lean in a little bit because you know that every one of us have been in this place. And here it is. It's the first filling in your notes. That we all have a tendency to bargain with God. We all have a tendency to bargain with God. And you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do is go back to when you were a teenager. Can you go back there, right? And you were coming home and you were late past curfew, right? And what was the prayer that you prayed? Oh, God. Oh, God. If my parents just won't be awake, if they don't know I came in the house late, God, I promise that I will go to church this coming Sunday. I'll be there with bells on. God, if you can just do this one thing for me, I just cannot go through it being late again. Right? I'll even go to camp. You know, maybe I'll go, you know, an extra spiritual weekend retreat. God, if you could just do this for me. And actually, people do this in every single religious system, right? For adults, we say things like, well, God, if you'll just let, not let my boss see that I'm late again, if you'll just make sure that she doesn't find out, God, if you could just give us the money to do this one thing, or if you'll just bring them back, or if you'll just let that test be negative, then I will... I will, I will, or I won't, I won't, I won't. And we do our very best to bargain with God. And here's the thing, that even if you would claim that you're an atheist or an agnostic, 
I believe that every one of us, regardless of our faith system, have done this when the situation's got bad enough because it's just human nature, right? We throw up the Hail Mary prayer. Well, to whom it may concern, if you will heal them, then God, that would be enough proof for me and then I will start following you. All right, it's true for all of us. And here's the other thing that I know about us when it comes to this bargaining with God. None of us are ever good at keeping our end of the bargain, are we? None of us are good at holding up our end of the deal. In fact, when you got home at night and your parents were asleep and they never found out, what did you tell your friends? Oh, man, am I lucky. Right? My parents were still asleep. Or when you tell your coworkers, oh, I'm so glad that the boss had the early morning meeting and wasn't here to see me late again. I would have been fried. Right? We never think that maybe God has orchestrated anything or answered a prayer or anything. We just kind of go with, we're off the hook. It's good fortune. We've been lucky. Right? I was so lucky that the teacher was gone for an extra day so I could finish my project. Oh, I'm so glad that I remembered to take that birth control. Right? Nervous, laughter. We've all bargained with God because we're human and we do this. But yet none of us are very good at following through on our promises. We just move on with our lives, don't we? We don't intend to say to God, well, the things I said I would or wouldn't do, I'm not really going to go on with that. Why? Because we're terrible at keeping our end of the bargain. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to bargaining with God, there are two assumptions that we make. And you'll know this is true as soon as I say them, but maybe you've never thought of them in these terms before. But when we bargain with God, there's two assumptions. And the second one I want to drill down on today that's going to help us give us a new mental framework for our relationship with God. And the first assumption is this, your next fill-in. That when you bargain with God, you assume that God knows you exist. That's a big assumption, isn't it? Whenever you throw up a Hail Mary prayer, or you make promises about I will or I won't, you're actually assuming that God knows you exist. You actually believe that the God of the universe is paying attention to you, knows your name, sees and hears about what you're actually going through, and he gives a rip about it. That is actually huge faith. And whether or not you ever thought you were a faith person, just the fact that you thought you could bargain with God tells me that you have more faith than you realized. Because we assume that God actually knows we exist. The second thing that we assume is this one, that when you bargain with God, you also assume that you have something God wants. I mean, it's not a bargain, really, unless both people come to the table with something to give, right? And so when we bargain with God and we throw up Hail Mary prayers, we're actually assuming that we have something that God wants. I mean, this is pretty bold, isn't it? Right? This is what we say, well, I mean, God, I really need you to do this for me. So, God, if you will do this, how about a little of obedience in this one area? I know you've been kind of talking to me about but I'm going to start being obedient in that area because I know you want that, right, God? Or when we bargain with them, we say, God, now if you'll do this for me, I'm going to, I know what you want. I'm going to start showing up at church more often. In fact, God, if you will do this thing for me, I'm going to make it like three times in a row. And I know I haven't done that in years, but God, three times in a row, I'm going to go to church because I know that's what you want. Well, God, if you'll, if you'll just answer this prayer, I mean, it's out of my control, but God, if you'll do this for me, I want you to look, God, what I have. I have a crisp $10 bill. Right? Because that's what I hear about. All the preachers want is the money. And so, God, I, 
I have a $20 bill, God. This is as far as I'm going, but I've got a $20 bill. I will put in the plate today, God, if you answer this prayer. Right? We bargain with God because we think that we have something he wants. And when we say it like that, it kind of sounds silly, doesn't it? That we would have something that the God of the universe wants. But maybe many of you grew up in a religious system that taught you that was true. And if you grew up with that religious system and you're wanting to have a brand new starting point for your faith, there's something that you need to understand. And this one thing we're going to talk about today separates Christianity from every single other religion. It's core to its teaching. It's core and it's fundamental to everything that Jesus taught us. And it was this, and it's your next feeling. That God doesn't want anything from you, but instead wants something for you. That God doesn't want anything from you, but instead wants something for you. And I love talking about this because this is the heart of the message that Jesus shared. He doesn't want anything from you, and he certainly doesn't need anything from you. And this is why negotiating with God never works. He refuses to come to the bargaining table because, guess what? He's God, right? Like, he made you, and in fact, he's giving you the little breaths you need to stay alive right now, all right? There's nothing that God needs from you or I to continue on. But there is something that God has for us that he wants to give us. And it's this word that we have, it's this great word that we have in Christianity that helps explain this, and it's this word right here. Grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. What does it mean, right? Grace, it it means it's unearned. Something that has been given to you that you did not pay for, that you didn't deserve. And this is such a powerful word. In fact, your next fill-in, grace is at the epicenter of the Christian faith and is at the heart of how God relates to us. It's grace. It's the epicenter of our faith. And Jesus taught that this word grace is the constant that never changes with God. That he is full of grace. Full of grace. What does this mean? Well, if we were to define it, we would define it this way. Next fill in your notes. It's this. Grace is the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. The unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Now, since some of us are still kind of waking up this morning, I get it, coffee hasn't kicked in. We're all going to read this together. Ready? Let's do it. Grace is the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Okay, that was only about 25% of you. Here we go, everybody now. Grace is the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. It's unearned, which means I'm getting something for nothing. Undeserved means there's nothing I could do to deserve it. Unmerited. There's nothing about who I am that warrants this kind of grace. It is completely out of my control. And grace is the unconditional favor of God, which means it's all about the person giving the grace, not about the person receiving the grace. In fact, if there's a cost associated with giving out grace, it's always paid by the one offering the grace, not paid by the one who is receiving the grace. Uh, Maybe you could relate to this. This summer, uh, my family and I, we went up to family camp, 
And on the drive there, uh, I thought we were on a two-lane road, and we were way up in northern Minnesota, and I'd never been up there before. And I just assumed that the speed was 65, right? And so naturally, I'm going 70, you know, one, two, three, whatever, right? Just like you would. And so I'm just, you know, taking above, and there's not going to be any officer that would pull me over five or six over. I mean, come on. And so, you know, I'm driving, and all of a sudden, I see a state trooper coming my way. Now, I did what you did, right? I mean, instantly, like everything, my, my heart's in my throat. Suddenly, I feel like I've got to go to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you've experienced this, this nervousness. And even though, you know, I don't believe I'm doing anything wrong, why do we get that way, right? We get so nervous. And all of a sudden, I begin to question myself. Is it really 65 here? And so, of course, the state trooper passes, and I watch, and all of a sudden, I see brake lights. And I was like, oh, crap, here we go. And he flipped a Yui, and he followed me all the way into this little town, which is about another mile or two away, and I just knew I was in for it. And so we pull into the town, and sure enough, his lights come on, and I go to the side of the road, and, you know, and all my kids are like, oh, dad. You know, I mean, they're having a field day with it, right? I'm like, shut up, shut up. And the officer comes to the door, and he, you know, they, you know, license and registration. And then they always ask this dumb question. Do you know how fast you're going? Why did I always ask that? Of course I know how fast I was going. I was driving. Of course I know that I was going 71, 2, or 3, right? I mean, of course I know that. He says, then this follow-up question. Well, do you know what the speed limit was? And I said, well, I, you know, I assumed it was 65, officer. I have never been up in this area before. I am just a lost little puppy. And I'll tell you what, my whole family, do you see how cute these kids are? Look back here, officer. We are going to a Christian Bible camp. That's where we're going right now, right? I'm out milking it for all it's worth. And so he takes my license registration. He goes back to the car, you know, and I'm sweating to death. And all of a sudden, I see him get out of his car after about 10 minutes, which those 10 minutes feel like an eternity. I mean, come on. He gets out of his car, and he goes back, and he opens up his trunk. And in that moment, I had two thoughts. I said, number one, he is either getting a shotgun, and this is not going to end well. Or two, he's getting gifts for my kids. And if he's getting gifts for my kids, it means that I'm not getting a ticket. Right? I'm, this is playing out in my mind as it's happening. I don't know, I'm weird. And so he shuts the trunk and he's walking along the side of the car and I see him holding four colorful pens. And I knew, I was like, I'm not getting a ticket, yeah. And he came up to the window and he gave me my license and my registration. He said, hey, I'm just gonna give you a warning. It is only 55, you know. And kids, here you go, here's a pen. And everyone's like, oh. And I'm like, kids, respond. Isn't this a great officer? Respond. You're appreciative. You're smiling. And, and he, you know, he left and he drove away. And, 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 you know, and I just started driving again. And I just thought to myself, man, how awesome am I that I did not get a ticket, you know? How awesome am I? I mean, man, I am good. Of course I didn't say that. What was my thought? Man, that officer, what a great guy. What an awesome dude that he did not give me a ticket. You see, it's not the person receiving the grace that gets the credit. It's always the person giving the grace that gets the credit. And so in that moment, I deserved to get a speeding ticket. That's what I had earned. Yet he gave me something that I didn't deserve. And we call that grace. Right? And it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this idea about grace in all of his writings. And one of his more famous texts is found in a letter that he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major port city in the first century. And Paul had actually started a church there. And he's writing a letter to this church. 
But if you know much about Paul, we've talked about Paul here and there, you know that before he was a church starter or a church planter, he actually hated the church. And he hated anybody who followed Jesus. And he did his best to arrest them, kill them, and stomp out every trace of Jesus and his followers. This was his profession. It was his job. But one day, Paul has an incredible encounter with Jesus. And he realizes that everything he's been doing is wrong. And he decides from that point forward that Jesus is the one he needs to follow. He owns his sin. He asks for forgiveness. And God changes his life. And from that point on, Paul did not care about what he would have to suffer to let people know about this grace. And when he wrote these words that we're about to read, he wrote these in about 65 AD, and he was sitting in a Roman prison cell after being put there because of his faith. So I want you to pay attention to these words because he wants us to lean in and to understand and embrace this grace that God is offering us. And he starts out with actually some bad news. He starts this way in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And you means you, means us. All these years later, he's speaking to this church. He's saying, hey, as followers of Christ, you were dead in your transition or in your transgressions or your sins. You know, we think, Paul, could you be a little more optimistic? This is not a great way to start a letter, right? You're dead in your sin. And he says, no, 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 we have to start this way because this is actually the reality of your situation. This is the reality. And you have to admit, about, admit where you are before you can see how amazing grace actually is. And where you are is not a mistaker, but a sinner. You don't just have some bad habits. You didn't just have a few weak moments. You don't need some rehab to change your ways. Your relationship with God was actually dead because you killed it. It separated you because you intentionally broke it. You made decisions you knew were wrong. You made decisions you knew would separate from you from God. And you did it anyway, which means you are dead in sin. And then he goes on to describe how bad actually it is for us. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's speaking of Satan. He said, all of us also lived among them at one time. He's like, all of us are in the same boat. We've all gratified the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and its thoughts and like the rest, we were, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We deserved a certain wrath for the decisions we'd made. In other words, Paul is saying, you should reap what you sow. Right? You made the bad decisions, now the consequences should be there for you. You made choices that didn't live up to God's standard. Right? It's like... When you're driving and you see someone pulled over by the police officer and you're like, yeah, get them, right? Can't stand those people are speeding and maybe that will keep them from riding my bumper. Get them a big old ticket. But then when it's you and those pretty lights are on behind you, what do you think? What do you think of? I hope he lets me off. I hope she lets me off, right? I hope I don't get what is deserved. 
See, oftentimes we don't like grace until we're in the spot that needs it. But for other people, we say, yeah, reap what you sow, reap what you sow, reap what you sow. But when it comes to me, I hope I don't have to reap what I sow. But yet we know we violated God's laws, and this is exactly what Paul's getting to, that we've intentionally and deliberately done things that we knew would separate us from God and from others. And we deserve the consequences of those choices catching up to us, don't we? We deserve it. I mean, those are the choices we made. We should reap what we've sown, but Paul gives us some extraordinary hope, and this is the hope at the heart of Jesus' message again and again and again. And he starts verse 4 this way. He says, But God, every one of you were dead in your sin and you deserve to reap what you sow, but God. And here's what's so fascinating, that when we've made mistakes, you know what we start with? We usually start with, but I. Like, I I, I know I really screwed up, but I'm going to do better next time. I mean, I I know I shouldn't have done that, but but I'm going to do it different next time, or I'm going to give more, or I'm going to serve more. I get it. It's on me, and so it's on me to fix this. But I, but I, but I, but Paul doesn't start with but I. Paul begins with, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of your great works? No. Because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin. I mean, this is so powerful. Don't miss this. Because of his great love. Yet we often say, but, you know, I messed this up, so I'll do better. But I, but I, but I. But the truth is, your next fill-in, there's no but I that can get you out of this mess. Only a but God can save you. Only a but God can save you. And that's what he offers us. Paul says, we were hopeless. Yes, we were. We deserved wrath. Yes, we did. Yet the consequences, they should have taken us under, shouldn't they have? Yes, they should have. But God, you had a problem, but God. You've broken the relationship, but God. You're on a path of wrecking your life with the choices you're making, but God. You were once lost and alone, but God. See, it's always about him stepping into our world. And so do you see from this verse what motivates God to do what he does in our lives? To forgive you, to use you, to adopt you into his family, to show you care, to love you and pay attention to you. Why does he do that? Remember, he doesn't bargain with us. There's no negotiating table. Why in the world would God do this? It's not about your promises, about what you're going to do or not do. It's not about your goodness. It's not even about your church attendance or your money, rather, your next fill-in. God does everything he does in your life because of his great love for you. Everything in your life because of his great love. And in fact, it's the only motivation he has. And it's why he doesn't want anything from you, but instead has something for you. And Paul says he's a God who is He is rich in mercy and has great love towards us. Great mercy. Which means he could never run out. He's so rich in mercy 
No matter how many times you've failed, you'll never run out of his mercy and his grace. Whenever I have the kids in the car with me and, and we're up early and the sun is rising, I'll point to that sunrise and I'll say, do you know what that sunrise reminds us of? My kids will say, that it's daytime? No, that, that too. I mean, yes, it's daytime. But it reminds us that the Bible says that his mercy is new every single morning. That every single time the sun comes up, it resets his mercy and it resets his grace in our lives, which is absolutely unbelievable. And if anybody should understand this grace we call amazing, it should be Paul. I mean, he was trying to kill the Christians. I mean, can you just see God up in heaven? Right? He says, hey guys, come here, come here real quick, come here. You see that guy, Paul? What should we do with him? Hmm. I mean, some people are saying we should just squash him like a bug, you know, like just, I mean, he's, he's trying to kill my church. I mean, maybe we should just kill him. But God says, you know what, I've got a better idea. How about I show him how incredible my love is for him? And then we're going to use him to start a bunch of churches. Doesn't that sound like a good plan? I'm sure everybody's like, what? That's not what Paul deserved. It's not what he earned. It's not what he had coming. It's exactly what God did. He picked him up and he dusted him off and he forgave him and he said, now go start churches. And here is Paul, the one who had maybe the biggest regrets of all time. He is now a church planner and leading the cause. What is that? It's undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. Grace. And so if anyone could sum this up, it would be Paul. And it's exactly what he did in verse 8, and it's your next villain. He said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And saved means I'm back into relationship with God. I've been saved from the penalty of my sin. The consequences aren't going to hunt me down. Saved means I'll be saved to spend eternity with him in heaven forever. I've been saved from the power of my sin. I don't have to live that way any longer. I've been made a son or daughter of God, and it's through nothing that I have done. It's simply through faith, just like when we talked about Abraham and how he decided to trust God, and that one act of trust made relationship with his heavenly father possible. It gave him right standing with God. And the same is true of us. All we have to do is trust. All we have to do is believe. And it's all because of grace. Now here's Paul, and I love Paul. One of the reasons that I love Paul is that he knows sometimes we're dumb. And, and we don't get things on the first time. And even though he's just told us, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. He adds another little part to this verse to make it super clear to those of us who aren't as smart as the rest of us in the room. And this is what he says, and this is not from yourselves. It is the, what's that word? What's that word? It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In, in case you hadn't got this, you're saved through faith. And, it, and just to be clear, it is not because of your good works. It is not because of anything you've done. 
It is a gift from your heavenly Father that only needs to be received. There's no trade with God. There's no negotiating with God. There's no bargaining with God. Forgiveness and grace are yours and mine if we would receive it as a gift, a gift that is unearned, undeserved, unmerited, and unconditional because God, who is rich in mercy, offers it to us because he loves us so much. He loves us so much. Now, that's the theology side of it. And let me just talk for a moment as we wrap this up on how practically this impacts our life. Because some of you were not taught this. Some of you were taught that you had to earn God's approval. And you feel like you've been on a hamster wheel your whole life, never measuring up. And it's why some of you walked away from faith. And it's why some of you gave up on church. Because you thought, no matter how hard I try, it's never enough. And if someone like me in a position like mine in a church like this ever told that to you or gave you that impression, I am so sorry. That is not the message that Jesus brought. It was always grace, always a gift. And so this is the question we need to ask ourselves as you consider a starting point of faith. And it's these right here. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? There's really only one of two choices, and it's this. Your behavior or God's grace. That's really it. There's really no other choices. It's either your behavior or God's grace. And so many of us were taught that it had something to do with our behavior. So let me just start there for a minute and ask you this question as we get ready to close. Listen. If it is about your behavior, what are the minimum behaviors you would have to do to have right standing with God? Go ahead, make the list in your head. What is it? Because some would say, well, it's the Ten Commandments. No, it's not. The Ten Commandments were given to a group of people who already had relationship with God. They were already in right standing. They were in the family model. And because they were in the family, God said, hey, now that we're all family, let me give you some rules to live by that will help your life. It's not the Ten Commandments. You might say, well, maybe it's the Sermon on the Mount. And to that I would say, there's no way. Because Jesus came in and he elevated the the bar so high that all of us flunked. Not one of us could make it. Like where the law said you shall not commit adultery, Jesus said now you can't even lust, and if you lust, it's the same as adultery. I mean, come on, we all fail. The truth is, there's no list. And any list you would make up, you would be making up. Because there's no list in the Bible that says that if you will do all of these behaviors, then God will accept you and then he will love you. And here's the other really terrible thing about making our own list of rules. We don't even keep our own rules, right? We're terrible at it. And just about the time we think, well, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm only human, so I'm going to lower the bar. We still hit our head on the bar, right? I mean, come on. We can't even, we can't even follow our own list of rules, let alone God's. 
So if you go the behavior route, you will actually never know where you stand with God. It's impossible to have any confidence, and that's why Jesus did not teach this. Rather, he taught that it's all about God's grace, not your goodness, not my goodness. It's all about his grace. It was a gift of God. Remember, he reminds us here that it is the gift of God, not by works. It is the gift of God given to us. And so if you want to start your faith anew, and you're considering what your standard is going to be, you really have to answer one of these two questions. Is it what you do for God, or is it what God has done for you? You've got to wrestle that bad boy to the ground. Is it what you do for God, or is it what God has already done for you? And let me just illustrate it this way as as we close this thing. For many of us growing up in, in our religious circles, it has been all about do. Do this, do that, do more, do less, don't do that, don't do this. Right? Do, do. And this here, right here, you know what this is? This is every religion. This is what religion tells us, that the more you do, the closer God will come to you. The more you do, the more God will accept you. The more you do that is what is right, what God wants, the more he'll accept you. And this is the one difference, and no other religion is like it. Do you know what Christianity says? Christianity said it's not about what you do. It's all about what has been done. It's not about what you do. It's about what has already been done for you. And this is the difference between feeling stranded by religion and walking in the freedom of grace that God has freely given us to walk in. And so your last feeling, we'll say it this way, that all the to-dos are simply a response to what God has to done. All right? I know English isn't great, but it works. Just follow me, all right? If you're an English teacher, don't send me an email. All the to-dos are simply a response to what God has to done, all right? Now, here's what I mean by this. Does this mean that we should not ever do anything? Does this mean that God never wants us to do anything? That he doesn't care about what we do? Of course he cares about what we do. But it is now out of a response of what has already been done for us. All it is is a reflection of what has already been done for us. Why are we kind? Because we've been shown extraordinary kindness by our Father. Why do we show love? Because we've been shown extraordinary love when we were dead in our sin. Why do we serve? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he served us in the most powerful way possible. Why do we give? Because he's given us so much. Why are we generous with others? Because he's been so generous with us. You see, everything we do is simply to be a reflection of everything that's already been done for us, and it's called grace. It's not about what you do. It's about what has already been done for you. 
And that's what Paul is inviting us into to understand. That it's never been about your behavior. And it's never been about a list. It's always been about receiving the gift of grace from your heavenly Father. And so it is time to stop bargaining with God because he doesn't bargain. And it's time to start the relationship. It says, God, I'm just receiving it. I'm just receiving it. I'm just receiving it. So in just a moment, we're going to close with just 30 seconds of prayer between you and God. And we believe here at Riverway that God can speak to our hearts, that we can speak to him. And he's not going to talk to us in an audible, weird voice. He'll just speak to our heart. And maybe your prayer is this. God, for so long, I have been so worried about the doing because this is what I was taught. I thought I had to measure up. And God, I'm sick of being on the hamster wheel. And today, I'm just going to receive your grace to know that it's been all about you and not about me. Or maybe your prayer is that, God, I've never received truly what you've done for me. I've never asked you to forgive my sin and make me whole, not based on what I've done, but based on what you've done through your son. So would you do me a favor, just bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that the way we have a relationship with you is simply through this undeserved, unearned, unmerited thing called grace. Thank you that you didn't give us a cumbersome list. That we had to forever try so hard to achieve. Thank you for saving us when we were dead in our sin. So remind us again today of this rich mercy that you have towards us. That even when we fail and even when we make decisions we know are hurting our relationship. Remind us of that sunshine every day. That your grace and your mercy are new all over again for us. And we can come back to you. For those that have been wrecked in this mental state of trying to appease you and please you earn their way towards you, I pray that that struggle would be over and a receiving of this gift would be at hand. And we'd apply this grace like water being poured over us. We would apply this grace thoroughly to every part of our relationship with you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.